I'm turning this morning to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. And our text this morning will be verses 22 through 36. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. And our subject this morning is simply, Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the Son of God. Simple to say, but of course the acknowledgement of Christ being the Son of God is certainly a profound and deep uh, declaration made by um, the disciples here in our text. In the passage before us, we have what we have been witnessing in the study of the book of Matthew. Uh, Everything has been moving in a singular direction. Uh, The events that we see here in verses 22 through 36 uh, they come to a uh, what we might say a crescendo, a pinnacle, in verse number 33, when the Bible tells us there, then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now this was not a new declaration, of course. The Father had declared at the baptism of Christ in Matthew 3.17 that Jesus was the Son of God. Uh, Even the demons in Gadara confessed that Jesus is the Son of God in Matthew 8.29. But this is really the first time we see the twelve disciples, the apostles, declaring this in unison that Jesus is the Son of God. They made this declaration right after they had witnessed uh, Jesus powerfully demonstrating His deity as this event unfolds that we'll look at this morning. And in this particular text, in verses 22 through 36, we're given six demonstrations, I believe, uh, that declare that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Himself God. Now, in a church like ours, that statement is most likely met with agreement. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, Churches like ours take that stance. Most believe that, that Jesus is God. Uh, He's not just a good man. He's not just an example to follow. But that Jesus is very God. He is deity. Uh, He is not just a a man who we are just to simply look at and say, look, I want to pattern my life after this good man. Uh, Jesus Christ is God. Uh, The declaration that He is the Son of God. So in this text, really through verses 22 through 36, we see how Christ Himself demonstrated these things by magnifying uh, divine attributes, if you will. Things that were reserved that only God Himself could do. Uh, This passage is a familiar passage to many of us. Uh, Jesus walking on the sea and the event when Peter is, in, is also told to come walking on the sea. And we'll, we do see that they both at one point are on the sea. Uh, Peter, of course, is at one point, he takes his eyes off of Christ and he begins to sink. But throughout this entire event, Jesus himself is demonstrating this declarative statement that the disciples make that Jesus is the Son of God. And let's look at these first few verses, verses 22 through 24. We see the demonstration through, by Christ of His divine authority. The demonstration by Christ of His divine authority. Verse 22 says, And straightway 
Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, we see a parallel account of this event also in Mark chapter number 6, and it gives us a little bit more detail as to where the locations were. Uh, But similarly, they both say that Christ is said to have constrained his disciples to get into this ship. Uh, Most commentators believe that there was a little bit of an unwillingness on the part of the disciples to actually get into this ship, yet Jesus constrained them. He compelled them to get in. Uh, And as they get into the ship, Jesus, of course, is doing this by his divine authority. He's telling them to get in. He's sending them across uh, on their own first. And so this this authority of Christ to declare, look, I want you to get into this ship, and he sends them away. Jesus, in the meantime, goes up to a mountain to pray. And we covered a little bit of this in the previous text last week, where Jesus would seek those moments and times to get alone with his Father to pray. And I mentioned how important it is for us to have in our own life Times when we come apart to pray, where we are communing, we are communicating with God, uh, we are uh, putting our place in, a, or putting our, our 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 energy into a place of solitude. And yet, here Christ, we saw last week how as he tried to do that, the multitudes thronged him. He was not able to go, but he did not complain. He healed, and and he demonstrated his ability uh, to heal the sick. But we see that as Jesus has come apart to pray and as he's gone to the mountain alone, uh, we see uh, that while he's praying on the mount, verse 24 tells us that the ship which carried his disciples upon the sea now encounters a storm. Uh, This storm and all storms do not arise apart from the counsel of God. This was not a surprise storm. This was not something that was unaware by God. It was not unaware by Christ. He knew this storm was coming. This storm was ordained by God Himself. And yet it is during this storm that Christ is going to demonstrate this divine authority, not only what He has over the disciples, but even the divine authority that he's going to have over the things which the world would just simply say, that's an act of nature. Uh, That's that's just what Mother Nature does. Uh, There is no such thing as Mother Nature. There's no such thing as just an act of nature. All things are under the providential hand of God. Nothing happens apart from God's commanding it to take place. Life is not a series of chance. It's not a series of coincidences. It's not happenstance, whatever the cliche is. It is all ordained by the providential hand of God. And every storm that is sent is sent by divine authority. The waves, the wind has no authority to push back on he who is the creator and the authority and to say, no, I will not obey. They're all under the authority of God. 
this storm is exactly the same thing. So we see the demonstration of Christ's divine authority. In verse 25, of course, we don't see it as clearly here, but we see the demonstration of Christ and His divine omniscience. His omniscience. Omniscience means to be all-knowing. There is nothing that uh, God does not know. And we're told that as the ship, in verse 24, is in the midst of the sea, it's being tossed with waves, the wind is pushing against it, and we're told that in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking onto the sea. Now, we won't get into a lot of the history of the time and what the times would have been, but for our message this morning, this was about three hours before the rising of the sun. He knows exactly when he's to go to them. He walks out on the sea to his disciples at specifically the right time. He knows what they're enduring. He knows that there's a storm. He knows that this storm has a purpose. Again, this storm is not, uh, has not arisen outside of the council of God. Jesus, it says, he walks on the sea. I'm afraid that we've probably heard this song or heard this sermon too many times or heard this verse too many times that we don't stop and marvel at that statement. Jesus walked on the sea. When's the last time you saw that? That just makes us stop and marvel and say, Jesus walked on the sea. And even more glorious is it says he went unto them. He walked on the sea, which is not possible for a man to do. You and I cannot do this. But yet Jesus comes walking to them. He knows exactly where they are. He walked on the sea as if it was firm ground. He didn't walk on the sea and start going under. He walked as if you and I were walking on the ground. He knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what the storm was. And he knew exactly what they were enduring. And yet he walked unto them. Verses 26 and 27, we see the demonstration of Christ's divine protection. His protection. It says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. Now notice what they were troubled by and what their thoughts were, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. Now, this was not a strange thought process during the day. Uh, it was very common for people to have a, uh, an obsession almost with the doctrine of resurrected spirits. It was, not un it was not unusual that people would say, you know, we've, we've heard that dead people sometimes will come back, because that was the prevailing truth of the day, that sometimes the spirit of a dead person or an angel or a demon may suddenly appear. The Bible says they thought this was a spirit. They didn't think this was the Lord. They thought this was a spirit. It's very clear that that's what their mindset was. They believed that this was something that was not of divinity, but rather maybe it was something of a demonic presence. So their natural response is fear. There's two things there. I think we would be fearful, number one, to see anything out there. right? That would be a fearful thing, something you would not expect to see. But they were fearful because they thought this was something that was there for their harm, not for their good. 
We understand that even in the realm of what Satan is given the ability to do, I think we as believers need to be continually reminded that the devil is only allowed to do what God allows him to do. It would help you in your day-to-day walk if you would keep that in mind. The devil is not running rampant unhinged. He is a defeated foe, and he has to get permission from God to do what he does. The demons, nothing can happen to you that God is not going to allow to happen. Now that's hard for us to get sometimes, but we wonder, we say, I wonder if God actually knows what I'm going through, because there's no way God would let this happen to me. And I would suggest to you, how do you know that? Why do you know God would not let it happen to you? Why would God not let it happen to you? Why would he not allow the storms to come into the disciples' life? He's all authority. He's omniscient. It's his protection that is being illustrated here. The devil, we're told, can appear as an angel of light. It would not have been beyond the realm of possibility that this could have been a satanic presence. When the disciples were looking at the text here, see at a distance, they don't see Christ walking on the sea first. They see a spirit walking on the sea. That's why they originally cry out in fear because they're afraid that this is some kind of a demonic spirit. And I love the wording of the text. Uh, this Again, your translation may be different. Uh, this is one of my favorite words in the Bible, and people are often quote, talk to me about, you like those words that don't seem very consequential, the therefores, and this is another one of those words in my translation, straightway. That's right away, in an instant, Jesus spake. The moment their fear rose up in them, He spoke to them. And I love what He said. In the midst of a storm, in the midst of a raging sea, in the midst of their fear, thinking they're seeing some kind of a resurrected phantom demonic spirit, He says what all of us would say. Be of good cheer. Right? (laughs) That's not what I would say. He says, be of good cheer. And this is not insignificant that he says, it is I. All the way back in the Old Testament, we see God's declaration of who he is by the simple words, I am. He didn't say, men, this is Jesus. He just said, it is I. That word I is, in that, in that context, that is a strong word of deity. It is I. And because it is I, even in the midst of this storm that's raging against you, be of good cheer. And for good measure, he adds, be not afraid. He knew they were afraid. He knew that they were struggling with what was happening around them. Now in Mark, Mark 6.52, he adds this regarding that, that they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. You see, what had happened not too long ago, we looked at this, how that Jesus had fed the 5,000 men, not including the women and children, which if you do your math, actually says he probably fed upward of 25,000 people. 
They had forgotten so quickly what Jesus just demonstrated. He just demonstrated the ability and declared that only God can create something from nothing. Only God can make it multiply. Only God can turn enough, make that into enough food to feed that many people. And yet, the Bible in Mark 6 says that they did not consider. They had forgotten, so easily forgot what Jesus had just done. Their heart was hardened. Imagine how many times in our own life after we experience God's power and goodness to us, how quickly do we forget that we can trust Him? How often do we show a distrust in His providence? How often do we show a distrust in His sovereignty when we maybe don't say it verbally, but we say in our heart, God, do you know what you're doing? Do you see what is going on in my life? Do you understand what my struggle is? Understand, they should have been able to remember something so recently that they would distrust His providence. Would Jesus really have taken them out to sea to let them die? The miracle was supposed to put a proper impression upon them. What they should have gotten from the miracle was that Jesus Christ is God. But they still didn't have it. They still were not, they were still not getting it. And that's what leads to Jesus to now bring Peter out onto the water with him. You thought it was amazing that Jesus is walking on the water. It's even more amazing that Peter's going to get out of that boat and he's actually going to walk on the water. This is where a lot of our critics would say, you really don't believe all that, do you? And I say 100%, yes, I do. I believe every word of it. I believe everything from Genesis to Revelation. I believe it all. I believe it because that's what God's declared. So what we do see is Jesus tells them to be of good cheer. He reminds them and and demonstrates by His words, it is I, I am God, be not afraid. In verses 28 through 31, we see the demonstration of Christ's divine faithfulness. His divine faithfulness. Now notice Peter shows a little bit of hesitation by using that powerful word, if. He says in verse 28, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou. Now Jesus has already said, it's me, it's I. And Peter with a little bit of hesitation says, if it's you. Now again, we're not, we don't stop and marvel enough at Jesus walking on the sea. Marvel at what Peter's requesting to be able to do. If it's you, Bid me come unto thee on the water. Tell me to come out on the water and walk on the water. Again, this is a miraculous, unbelievable thing that's taking place before us. Again, with familiarity, we sometimes miss some of the richness of the stories. We miss the richness of the text of what's really happening here. I mean, we're already amazed what we've seen so far, and yet now Peter, yet he's showing a bit of a waver to his faith. He showed that his faith was not as strong as it should have been, because even after he heard the Lord's voice, he says, if. He says, bid me come unto thee on the water. He shows some strengthening of his faith, 
and a resolution to obey the command. In other words, he says, Lord, if it's you and you tell me to come out on the water, then I'm going to obey you. So do you see, he's demonstrating some level of faith, but he's still got some distrust because he's saying if. But he's still saying, Lord, if it is you, then I am willing to get out of this boat and I'm willing to get on the water and do something that I should not be able to do because I trust you. And we'll see that this is exactly what happens. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, are you sure? It says, and he said, come. There's no formality of the invitation. He says one single word. He says, come, period. And when Peter was come down out of the ship. Now, Peter is exhibiting some level of faith to even get out of the ship and get on the water, is he not? So we can't say that Peter in this event is faithless. That he has no faith at all. People that sometimes teach this and they say, Peter had no faith. No, he was having a crisis of his faith. He was having a problem recognizing what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand. That I am God. And if God bids you to come, then it is as good as done. Peter's faith is just like our faith is. There are things that we'll say, Lord, I will do if you'll say this. Oh, Lord, I'll do this. And we're always prefacing it by if. If, Lord. If, if it is you. If it's your voice I'm hearing. If it's your voice I'm hearing as I read the word. But notice he says, and when Peter was come down out of the ship, again, we, we lose sight of the marvel. What, is it, what does it say he did? He walked on the water. Now we have Peter walking on the water. That's not supposed to happen. It's only happening because God told him to walk on the water. This is not, this is not some verse that's been meant to use to buy into prosperity gospel. That's not what this is. This is an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ as God bids Peter to come and as he told him to come and as Peter obeyed, he did what God commanded him to do and he walked on the water. You say, preacher, you really believe that that event took place and Peter actually walked on the water. I actually do 100% believe that this happened exactly the way it's being said. Peter is a pattern of even the best of believers. I say the word best of believers very, very loosely. Uh, as we talked about even during our 10 o'clock hour, we have a very, very high opinion of our own faith when it's put to the test. We all know what we would do if persecution comes. We all know what we would do if somebody bust in the front door and basically commanded us all, renounce the name of Christ or you are going to lose your life here. We all think we know what we would do. But you would not know what you will do until your faith is actually put to the test to see if your faith is actually in God Himself. We're always much better spiritually than what we really are. We have these mountaintop experiences in our life where we say, look, my faith is really, pardon the expression, my faith is really humming right now. My faith is just, I'm telling you, it's just like I can, I, I can do anything for God. I, I, I have, my faith is so strong. I feel so near to Him. And then bam, an affliction comes. And a struggle comes. 
And suddenly that faith that was running and humming so well when your life was going well, now it is severely tried and severely tested. And suddenly you slam the brakes on and you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I had faith up to a point. But this is just too much. Again, it wasn't that Peter was faithless. Peter just had some doubts in his faith. He had some doubts in what he could trust. Again, Peter is the one disciple who seems to get an unprecedented amount of negative stories about him because Peter was always the one that seemed to be the most outspoken, the most willing to do. And that's why Peter's like every one of us. Every one of you, including me in this room, we're all just like Peter. We all have this confidence. God, you remember when Peter says, Lord, I'll die for you. The Lord's all but telling him, no, you won't. Not now. Not now you won't. Now eventually he did. But when Peter thought he would, the Lord said, no, you won't. You see, Jesus is teaching not only Peter, but He's teaching the disciples. And we, we learn today that we, we be careful about trusting in our own perception of our spiritual condition. We make a grave mistake of the strength of our own heart. Because when a great trial comes, then we see where our faith really is. We have too much confidence in ourselves, folks. We really do. We say, I trust in the Lord in all things. But if you were to peel away everything, is your confidence solely and squarely on God alone? Or is it a little bit of confidence in God and a little bit of confidence in you? If you were to lose everything that you own, earthly speaking, would you still trust in Christ and would God still be enough? Would Christ... We talk about Christ is sufficient. We talk about God is all I need. We sing old hymns that say, He's all I need. Christ is all I need. If that's all you had, would Christ actually be enough? Or is He just all you need because you have other things that you're leaning on? See, you don't really know if He's all you need until everything is taken away from you. Again, be wary of our own spiritual strength. Be wary of saying, I have confidence. I know what I would do. Peter had faith. He got out of the boat. But it wasn't until his faith was tested. I think this is also by way of application. I think we mentioned this again earlier that we need to be careful about judging the heart and the faith of somebody else. We are very quick to condemn, we're very quick to boast. We're very quick that we'll call my confidence is in God, but my confidence is actually in my ability to influence what I'm saying. Listen, the Word of God, we declare the Word as it is. And the Gospel doesn't need to be altered. The Gospel doesn't need to be changed. I don't have to, have to present it in a way that's more palatable to people. I don't have to adjust the gospel depending on who's hearing it. I don't have to change it for a certain group of people. I don't have to change it for a certain nation. I don't have to preach the gospel differently to people who we say, now those are really bad sinners. It's the same gospel. 
Because everybody who is a sinner needs the same Jesus Christ. It's not the Jesus Christ of China, the Jesus Christ of Russia, of Ukraine, of Bolivia, whatever it is. Christ is the same. So when we talk about what man needs, man needs Christ. Man needs the Gospel. We need to be reminded every day about the Gospel. Sadly, I think it's when we get too much confidence in ourselves. That's when we forget the beauty of what the Gospel has done for us. Now, Peter is going to demonstrate just again how quickly he can take his eyes off of the Lord and on himself. Notice Peter, it says he walked on the water, verse 29, to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. And what does Jesus do? And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith. He doesn't say, O Peter of no faith. He says, O thou of little faith. God, of course, we know. He is omnipresent. He is never far from His people. Christ simply says to Peter, O thou of little faith. But then He asks him a very stirring question. Wherefore didst thou doubt? Or why did you doubt? Doubting is always contrary to our faith. Okay, I think this is important. Doubting is contrary to our faith, yet doubt is not a conclusion that our soul has no faith. Just because you have some doubts doesn't mean that you have no faith. But it's contrary to faith. In other words, faith and doubt are not supposed to go together, but it doesn't mean that they won't be together. There have been times in my life as a believer when I have had doubts. I have stood in a pulpit with doubts. I have struggled personally with things in my own life and wondering, God, I'm struggling with what's happening in my life. I'm struggling with this. And yet, doubt does not mean that there's a lack of any faith at all. Now, we're told that we shouldn't doubt. We're told that we should not be anxious for anything. We're told many times to not fear. But do you know we're all, we're all guilty of having times of fear. We're all guilty of having times of doubt. And every one of us are filled with anxiety. There are more anxious Christians now, seemingly, than ever. What's the cause of that? It all comes back to this little faith. It comes back to needing a reminder of who God is. And a reminder that God, that God is a God who can be trusted in all things in every circumstance of life. Be careful when a brother or sister who professes to be a brother or sister comes to you and seeks counsel from you and wants to know, I'm having a little bit of doubt in my faith. Please, folks, don't run them back over the gospel message again and say, are you sure you're saved? Doubt does not mean that there's no salvation. 
We're always looking for somebody's chink in their armor. Listen, view people the same way that you have to view yourself when you doubt. Why is it unusual that they're having doubts? Now, if you're one that never has any doubts, that's tremendous. You have a faith. I'm telling you, you probably could do anything you want to do for God. I'm still not there. I'm still not there where I can tell you that I don't ever have doubts. But yet, we understand that God was not done with Peter. And of course, this was just one of the beginning lessons. Look at verse 32. We see the demonstration of divine omnipotence. The Bible says that when they were come into the ship, direct context is that's Peter and Christ. They come into the ship. Immediately when they got in the ship, the wind ceased. Why did the wind cease? Because the omnipotent hand of God stopped it. Now they must have walked some way upon the sea, but now Christ makes his power as conspicuous and as obvious as he possibly can. He comes from walking, onto the, walking on the sea, and he comes into the ship, and as soon as he sets foot in the ship, the storm ceases. That simply tells us that he had power over the wind, he had power over the rain, he had power over the sea and the waves. And what happens next is, of course, of great significance. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. One interesting observation about this is we're not told exactly everyone that was on this ship. Now, we know the disciples got on a ship, but we don't know who else was on that ship. But it does say that everyone who was in the ship that night worshipped him. What were they worshipping? They were worshiping someone who had just preserved their lives from so great a danger, had just witnessed a person walking on the sea, inviting someone else to come and walk on the sea. Their conclusion was, this is the Son of God. This could only be done by God. Thou art of a truth. Thou art the Son of God. Many of Jesus' first miracles really only elicited out of many people who saw it just a respect for what he could do. Uh, they had an appreciation for what he could do. But there comes a point in time when even people began to acknowledge this is much more than just something worthy of my respect. This is something that can only be declared to be the act and the work of God. This is the first time we see the disciples so clearly acknowledging Christ being the Son of God. Again, I mentioned to you, we're not sure everyone that was on that ship, but this was not just done for those disciples, but it was also done for every passenger that was on that ship, whoever they were. Even though Peter's faith, we could not say that Peter had a strong, steadfast faith. Peter had faith. Now, I'd love to tell you that Peter's life from this point out becomes this perfect picture of faith. He never has any doubts. He never has any questions. After he declares him to be the Son of God, but we know that some of Peter's greatest missteps, if we want to call them that, come after this declaration. 
He's still going to struggle with this even after he saw Jesus walk on the water and he saw himself walk on the water. He's still going to doubt and he's still going to have an unsteady faith. But then Jesus gives them insight into one more thing and we'll look at this, verses 34 through 36, the demonstration of Christ's divine goodness. Now in Mark verses, uh, 56, verses 53 through 56, it's almost word for word. There's really no considerable difference here. But it says that as soon as they get over, they come into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all the country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Word gets out again that Jesus is now, he's there again. And people begin to express some level of faith by bringing in diseased people. They're bringing an act of faith, bringing a diseased person to someone with the belief that he can heal them. But then they say there's a very interesting way that it's, it is expressed here that says that they besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. Now again, we've, we've read this for many, many years, but have you ever stopped to consider why did they think hem of his garment? Did they, did they believe there was some sort of power in the, in the hem, in the sewing of his garment? Again, this is another one of those things that could fall into that level of there had been some sort of a superstition that had arisen that, listen, there's something in the hem of his garment. Or was it something that the faith was so strong that all they had to do was be near to him and that's where healing came from? Now, you all know that the, the healing was not in the hem of the garment. That's not what healed them. It was from he who was inside the garment. It was from the God in the garment. We, we, we'll, I'm telling you, we get, in our Christianity, we get real superstitious about stuff. We don't even, we don't even realize it. The, the, the emphasis is not on the hem of the garment. The emphasis is on Jesus Christ. And don't preach a whole sermon on the power of the garment. It's the power of the man who was wearing the garment. Christ is the one that had the virtue within himself to heal. He's the one that diseased the sick. We come to a conclusion here that we can put our confidence in and our faith in this Christ who can heal. This God that the disciples now are declaiming, are now declaring to be the Son of God. Now right now it might be easy for us to say, well... No wonder Peter worshipped him. Look what he saw. If only I could see and act like that in my eyes today, then I would believe. If only I could walk on the water, then maybe I would believe and I would not have any doubts. I'd have no troubles. But the point of this, the point of this miracle was for them to be convinced that Jesus Christ is God. That's the point of the miracle. It's not, what do you need to do to be able to walk on the water? It's about declaring that Jesus Christ is God. 
Not every church believes that. I've, I, people have asked me all the, t- all the time, if you're ever seeing and visiting a church and you're going, what are some things you should ask? Well, the first thing, and again, I don't mean to be ugly here, but the first question, the first most important question is not, what programs do you have? It's not, what do you have for my kids? That's not the most important question. Ask them what they think about Jesus Christ. Do you believe Jesus Christ is God? You say, that's such a, everybody believes that. No, they don't. Jesus Christ as God is an offense to many people. Even churches, they're offended. Jesus Christ isn't God. I said, no, it's only the, it's only the cult. Be careful about what you put in the cult category. There's a lot of churches. Let me shock you a little bit. There's, there's occasionally, you'll find a Baptist church doesn't believe Jesus Christ is God. So how can that be? Because they have long since left the Scriptures and have turned to a philosophy of the day and they don't know their Bibles. That doesn't de- declare everything that you believe just because you have the denomination on the sign. But what do you think about Christ? Is he God? The disciples, the point was to bring them to the place where now they could say that without any doubt. And they expressed it to him. Even though their faith is not perfect, even though their faith is still going to be, it's going to waver a bit, there's going to be some doubts. Here's what they could express. Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Can you say that today? Of a truth, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And of course, if you're here today, you may not know Christ. You may say, I don't know who Christ is. I don't know what it is to know Christ. The Bible very clearly says we are to repent of our sins and to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to believe that He is the way of salvation. We're to believe that it is through His shed blood on the cross of Calvary is where the remission of sins comes from. It's not through our good works. It's not through anything that we can do. It's only through what Jesus Christ has done. Do you even see your need? Do you even see that you're a sinner? There are people you're going to deal with in your everyday life who do not believe that they're actually a sinner. They are relying on their good works. They're relying on their good nature. They're relying on their morality. That's not what saves a soul. And again, the gospel is not an invitation. It's a command. Repent and believe the gospel. The reason that we reject it is because that old stubbornness doesn't want to acknowledge that I don't have any part of this. This is all of the work of God. That He doesn't turn anyone away who comes unto Him. No one can ever say, I went to Christ based on the merits of His righteousness and He turned me away. It's not happened one time and it never will happen. He's never refused anyone who came to Him. And yet people won't come. People will say, I don't need Him. The disciples could say with certainty, Thou art the Son of God. I hope that's our testimony this morning.
Let's conclude our time this morning by singing a familiar hymn, 105. We'll stand together as we sing. As we do sometimes with these hymns, we're only going to sing the chorus on the very last verse.